And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Monday, June 15th, 2020. I have my good friend PK with me. How are you, PK? Great, great. Glad to be here. We've got a very interesting guest today, Dr. Connie Mixon, who is a professor of political science and director of the Urban Studies Program at Elmhurst College. And I believe, Connie, you're also the acting chair in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice. Is that correct? Um, acting, yes. <laughs> that, that's a mouthful. So we are really looking forward to this today because you've got some expertise that uh, the rest of it fascinates PK and I. Welcome, first of all. Tell us a little bit about what urban studies is and how that ties to your background in political science. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, urban studies is an interdisciplinary academic program. Elmhurst College was actually one of the first colleges or universities in the nation to have an urban studies program. It started in 1968 under the direction of Dr. Andy Prinz. I am only the second director of the program in its long history. Um, and I've been with the college full-time since 2010. Urban studies is interdisciplinary in, it, in that it pulls from different core disciplines. So I happen to be a political scientist who has a PhD in political science with a focus on urban politics. But the program and the academic course offerings itself, they draw from sociology, from business, from economics, from criminal justice, from education, from public health, from a variety of fields. And the idea is that by looking at urban issues through different lens, we can get a more comprehensive solution to many of the challenges that our urban areas face. You know, it's, it, it sounds like uh, that's, there's a lot to cover there. And actually, we really want to talk about how um, what we can learn uh, relative to the pandemic experience. But I'm just thinking, too, um, it's very interesting to me that because of the pandemic, the whole educational process has changed. So, you know, what, what did you see going through that and what do you foresee for the future? Well, for higher education, I think it is fast forwarding a lot of challenges that college and, colleges and universities were already facing. So... We're seeing all across the country that colleges and universities are working really hard to create what we're calling in academia resilient classes for the next year, classes that can adapt to any changes that may come. If we get a second wave of COVID-19 in the fall, we may have to move online again. I would say, you know, this past spring, it kind of hit us all unexpected and we were all teaching in person and suddenly within a span of 48 hours. We all moved our classes online, but I think right. that we'll see much more comprehensive teaching and planning for the fall and the next year. We're looking at best practices for student engagement and training our faculty, but colleges and universities were already under extreme budgetary pressures prior to the pandemic. 
Um, in many states, particularly public state institutions who are dependent on state budgets were struggling and often higher ed is the place where states make up budget shortfalls. In Illinois, it does look like we're gonna hold um, our budget for public institutions of higher education constant for fiscal year 21, which is a relief for many of us. Um, I just looked it up this morning, the total state funding for public universities next year will be 1.16 billion, but this is also contingent on some borrowing and also getting federal aid. Um, so there is some fear that this budget won't last very long if the pandemic continues and tax revenue declines. Um, one of the things that we were happy about at Elmhurst as a private institution who's very much tuition dependent is that the state voted, our state legislators voted to fund the Illinois tuition grant program for low-income college students. It's known as MAP, the Monetary Assistance Program, at the same rate that it was last year at $451 million. And students that benefit from MAP are also largely those most impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic downturn. They're the ones without assistance are less likely to return to school. Um, and at Elmhurst, it's somewhere around 30% of our students depend on MAP grants. So it makes a huge difference to us that the state is able to continue funding MAP for next year. I know when uh, we spoke a few weeks ago, you mentioned that you were working on an interdisciplinary class this summer related to the pandemic, its effects and everything pandemic. Can you give us just a quick high level overview of what that class is going to be like? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that higher education is looking at in the future is more interdisciplinary collaboration and courses and programs. So what we've developed at Elmhurst for this summer is an interdisciplinary course looking specifically at COVID-19 with a variety of professors from different disciplines. So we're gonna, it's a four week course that's gonna run in July. It is free for all incoming students to the college. So if you're an incoming freshman or if you're an incoming transfer student, it's an opportunity to engage, to get to know some of our professors and start to get the feel of college life. So we're gonna start the course out with our biology professor, who's gonna tell us what viruses are and a little bit about how they spread. And then we're going to go on to our public health professor, who's gonna talk about the epidemiology of it and public health precautions. Then we're gonna to go to our geography and GIS mapping professor, who is going to explain the spread all the way from China and how it's spread across the United States. Then we're gonna to go to business and e economics. They're gonna talk about the economic impact of COVID-19. And then I'm playing um, cleanup at the end. The last professor is going to talk about the political and governmental response to COVID-19. So we're really excited about this course. You know, if there's any opportunity, uh, just really quick, is there any opportunity to audit that class? <laughs> I was going to say that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, we just did, it was fun because the group of professors and I have been working together on, on this for couple months since April was really when we first started thinking about it. And we've been talking amongst ourselves, but we actually just gave a presentation last week to the college's board of trustees. And it was really fun for us to 
pull it all together and start hearing each other talk and realize just really how it's going to sink and the synergy that's going to come from the different disciplines and looking at COVID-19. So we're very excited. And yes, you can join us for class anytime. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, yeah, Richard, you and I were thinking the same thing. Yes. Yeah, I thought of something else relative to uh, the, the college has been talking about becoming Elmhurst University. Are all these changes affecting that transition? Well, it's, it's, it's impacting it in the sense that we can't be all together to celebrate the name change on July 1st, but we still are moving ahead. As oh. of July 1, we become okay. Elmhurst University, and we'll still do some online things, and we're also um, celebrating our 150th anniversary this upcoming year. So yeah, COVID-19 is putting a little bit of a damper on some of the celebrations we would have liked to have had in person, but we're hopeful that we can do some of them online and that we'll be together soon and can, can have those celebrations and recognition of the great things that are happening at the college. Sure. It appears that um, the urban areas um, are feeling the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic harder than non-urban areas, suburban and, and rural areas. What, what do you think has led to that? Well, you're right. Um, the places that really have borne the brunt of COVID-19 thus far, anyway, are really densely populated urban and some suburban areas. So one factor is just simply density, how close people are living to one another. But I also think that it's important to point out that the, lat the, the latest data that we're looking at indicates that infection rates are now rising higher in rural America than it is in some of the metropolitan regions. And when we're talking about the impact that it's had on urban populations, I think we have to recognize the decades of inequality and systemic racism that we're seeing through the lens of COVID-19. Just in Chicago, 70% of those who are infected and dying from COVID-19 are black. Now keep in mind, only about 27, 28% of Chicago's population is black. And so that means that they're dying at a rate nearly six times that of white Chicagoans. And we're seeing these same patterns and these same disparities in other metropolitan regions. And you know, public health officials talk about chronic disease and the underlying factors that make COVID-19 much worse and put put individuals at higher risk of dying, but these are also linked to inequalities in terms of access to healthcare and economic opportunity. And one of the things that really struck me, I'm teaching a class on cities this summer, and one of the things that we're doing is we're looking at cities through the lens of inequality and racism, given everything that, that's happening right now. And an article that I just shared with my students um, was documenting huge disparities in life expectancy just amongst neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. So for example, in the largely white Streeterville area, um, Gold Coast, Chicagoans on average live to be 90 years old, but you go just nine miles south to Inglewood, which is largely African-American, the average life expectancy is only 60, 60 years old. This is a 30 year gap just over nine miles, and it's the highest gap in the country. Does, uh, does the level of education seem to have any impact on people following social distancing and things like that? Yeah, I think it does. Um, 
those with higher levels of education are more likely to follow public health recommendations and guidelines. Um, they're also less likely to be susceptible to a lot of disinformation and conspiracy theories that are floating around out there. Um, students will learn from our biology professor this summer that COVID-19 is very much real. It's not caused by 5G networks. It wasn't created by Bill Gates. <laughs> um, so it, what, what I am seeing though that concerns me as a political scientist is that we're seeing significant divides along party and ideological lines. So two thirds of all Americans don't think that the death toll from COVID-19 is actually accurate. I looked last night, we're reporting 117,000 deaths. Um, but the reasons why they don't believe it is linked to party identification. So 63% of Democrats will say that it's an undercount, given that some people are dying with COVID-19-like symptoms without being tested. But then amongst Republicans, a plurality think that that figure is inflated. And even President Trump has said the numbers are exaggerated. And so we see that and who believes whether the numbers are correct or not. But, and we also see it in mask wearing. Something as simple as wearing a mask has become a pretty divisive political issue. Just some stats for you. 70% of Democrats versus 37% of Republicans say they wear a mask when they leave the house. And so, you know, wearing a mask is now seen as some liberal political statement. And while not wearing one is sort of this, you know, don't tread on me, libertarianism, ideology. Um, it's really kind of shocking to me as a political scientist that these simple public health things can have led to such political polarization. You know, up until the last couple of days, uh, two states in particular come to mind for me, Washington and Florida, that had very early high incidences of COVID and then we've pretty much heard that they've got them under control. And I, and I say that again, up until the last couple of days, now we're starting to hear maybe that's not the case. But I wanna ask you, those are two states, you know, one that's mostly Democratic and one that's mostly Republican with kind of the same results. And I don't know how Washington's doing. I've heard Florida all of a sudden is taking a step back. What do you attribute the, how do the politics go into that whole mix of keeping people safe? Yeah, I think we're still trying to figure out the politics of all of this. I think political scientists are going to be looking at it for decades and decades. Um, you know, I'm not a biologist. I'm a political scientist, but I, I think it's fairly certain that pol political affiliation has nothing to do with whether or not somebody gets COVID-19. Um, <laughs> We're just so polarized geographically by race, by income, that I am concerned ab about the health of our democracy. And you're right, up until the past few days, it did look like Florida was making significant progress. But um, I just looked over the past 12 days, Florida's seen significant increases in the number of cases every day, somewhere around 2,000 new cases. and the head of their data tracking project, Dr. Rebecca Jones, is now claiming that she was fired because she didn't want, because she was refusing to manipulate the data so they could open up sooner. So, and then of course, 
the governor is saying it was insubordination. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's happening. Politics is involved in that too. So, sure. you know, and we're even seeing an increase in, in Washington state a little bit. There were states that really raced to open up their economies, Texas, Florida, to some extent, Arizona. And I'm really concerned about Arizona right now. Um, one, my sister and my nephew live there, but Two, they've had a 54% increase in cases just over this past week, and their hospitals are already at over 80% capacity. Yeah, so all these um, young people in inner city folks um, that are losing their jobs, do you, uh, it seems to me, but I'm asking for your confirmation, does that play into the political unrest that we've seen lately? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a convergence and layers that are all coming together. Given the events of the past couple weeks, I don't think we can separate racial disparities and the killing of George Floyd um, in Minnesota. Prior to his killing, Floyd had tested positive for, for COVID-19. And his killing and the disparities we see about who's most impacted by COVID-19 are symbolic of systemic racism in the United States. And I think these protests that we're seeing in the United States in major cities, even medium-sized cities and small towns and small suburbs, and even across the, the globe internationally, that they're centered on criminal justice reform, police brutality, but they're a further expression about the lack of progress towards racial equity, and then piled on top of it is economic insecurity. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think all of those factors coming together um, and the layered effects are what's contributing to it. Don't you think though the, the pandemic though in particular is, I mean, we've had a lot of these, these um, incidents that um, people protested, but not like this. I mean, this, and, and some of them have just been just as heinous as this one. So don't you think just that the people are sitting around, the young yeah. people in particular that are out, it just seems like they've got nothing else to do and they don't have anything else to take their mind off this thing that they're passionate about. So they're spending their time planning, it seems like. Yeah, I, I do. And I think, you know, for many, particularly young people, black and brown in inner cities, there really isn't a lot of hope, right? We've got, we've got gun violence, um, we have the pandemic, and then we have even further economic insecurity. I think all of that is all, all coming together. And I think you're right, this time does feel different. It feels different to me. It seems as if there's larger groups, but we're also seeing it in, you know, we're seeing more whites, um, particularly middle-class suburban whites. Um, I think something with that video struck them and they're now taking action that we hadn't seen to the same extent before. So it does feel like there are opportunities for change that may result from all of this. So we've seen some of these areas around the country that have a couple of them in particular, Seattle's the one that comes to mind where some folks have kind of taken over and, and kept the police out. Do you fear that, that that may catch on in other parts of the country and in Chicago in particular? Yeah. Um, 
Seattle's kind of an interesting case, right? It's a fairly new city. Um, it's one of America's youngest cities, and it's sort of this blank slate that encourages people to come and make big changes, whether it's business or innovation, Starbucks, politics, social areas. But they've also got this really you know, history of protests. Probably one that we're most familiar with was the World Trade Organization in 1999 and those protests. But they had huge protests in 1999, um, a workers' strike for days, um, right around the time of World War One. Then during the um, Depression in the late 1920s and 1930s, there were what were called Hoover Bills that were popping up all over cities, but they had the largest one and the biggest one. So it seems like Seattle's right for these type of things. Um, I was just looking a little bit last night, the Wall Street Journal had a reporter that was covering and doing some live reporting from that. It seems like in Seattle at this point that, you know, it's very peaceful at this point. It's turned into more of like a street fair atmosphere um, with what's happening in Seattle. So I, I thought that was interesting. Well, how do you think this, uh, all these events might affect the traditional um, urban, suburban, and semi-rural areas of Chicago? Yeah. Um, not a new city. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, as I, I said before, I am a little worried about rural areas um, being hard hit coming up. Um, we do find that those that live in rural areas do have many of the same risk factors as those that live in inner cities. They're more vulnerable to serious outcomes from COVID-19. They're older, um, they're, they're more likely to smoke, they're more likely to have high blood pressure, they're more likely to suffer from obesity. And these are all tied to the risk of severe illness, but also particularly in rural areas, folks, don't live close to hospitals. And the health systems are already stretched financially and in terms of capacity, and they just don't have as deep of a bench when, when, it, when huge demands are made upon them. So I do worry a little bit about what will happen in rural America. Um, politically, what I'm seeing as a political scientist is that the health and economic impacts of COVID-19 seem to be energizing particularly white suburban women voters. They were the key demographic in the 2018 midterm elections for Democrats. And I think they're a key demographic that would be looking at at the 2020 election. Back in the uh, 2008, 2009, whatever you want to call it, recession, we heard a lot about um, unemployment being affected by folks who had just stopped looking for jobs, people who decided to maybe retire early. Do you think there's going to be some of that after the pandemic? Some people that will just choose to retire and say, I'm finished. I'm, I'm at risk of this virus. I'm just going to stay out of the workplace. I was going to wait three years, but I'm doing it now. Yeah. And I think probably like a demographer or sociologist could probably give you further insight on that, but that's my gut feeling too. But also you know, those that have that financial capacity to be able to do so would be more likely to than those who, you know, are living paycheck to paycheck that wouldn't have that, that luxury to do that. So maybe just like early retirement type yeah. thing. Yeah. If, if people could afford it, they may likely do it. Yeah. 
But what, you know, the whole working it from home thing really has changed a lot. It was changing and then this happened and then it, just a huge impact on it. Do you see that changing permanently? Like, or, I mean, obviously it's not going to be exactly the same, but what do, you, what do you think might happen? I think that a lot of employers are realizing that their employees can work from home fairly effectively. Um, and as, as somebody who studies cities and urban planning, I, I worry about downtown office buildings, right? So if businesses realize that they don't need to rent all of the space, um, that they can have employees work at home just as well, why would they pay to rent large, you know, corporate downtown buildings? And think about that going back. Think about that. The one thing I was reading an article the other day, the elevators, just to get people up into their offices. Like there's going to be huge lines in these downtowns. They can only put, depending on the size of the elevator, two or four people in each corner just to get up the elevator. So it's going to be um, tough to transition fo um, folks back. My husband who works um, downtown, he's you know, their corporation is just saying that they may be home through part of the summer and then they're only going to go back at half capacity. So I think we're seeing some of that that's going to start to change a little bit. And I know uh, we have a huge um, public transportation infrastructure. Might the demands for that decrease also? Yeah, I am worried about that. Um, I think folks, and, and we see the disparities here again too, right? Those that can afford to, if they have their own automobile, if they can drive themselves, they're going to do so. Who is it that's most likely to then be on public transportation? All of those factors compound. So I do, we've, we've underfunded public transportation in the United States for decades and decades. And I think this is just another hit that public transportation is going to take, which has all time, you know, kinds of terrible consequences of putting people back in their cars and how that impacts our environment. I uh, was just talking to uh, PK earlier today about uh, an Amtrak train trip I took last summer with my wife and yeah, they're underfunded. <laughs> <laughs> well, our federal government funds 90% of interstate highways, but only 10% of public transport in the United States. Wow. Had no idea. Yeah. It's a good time to be a political scientist. Yeah, particularly an urban political scientist right now. Yes. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of job security, hopefully, in that. So kind of wrapping up, do you see a lot of positive outcomes that are going to come from this pandemic? Obviously, there's a lot of negative ones. You know, I do. Um, I do think that, as we said before, this time feels different. I think, in particular, white Americans are beginning to understand and see the inequalities resulting from systemic racism. I think we've also learned to think a little bit, I, I hope the United States has always had a very individualistic nature that maybe we start to see the benefits of collective action and collective good. Um, one of the amazing things that I've been watching living here in, in the city of Chicago is the lakefront, the wildlife that's coming back right, all along the lakefront. And I hope that we start to think about our environment a little bit. We've seen the pictures of cities all across the world, like Los Angeles doesn't have a smog problem anymore, right, as soon as people started staying home. China, theirs has cleared too. So I hope that we'll think about those things. And also as an urban political scientist, that Americans start to see that local government matters that local and state governments impact our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, 
much more and more significantly than our national government does and start paying attention to local government? Well, our guest today has been Dr. Connie Mixon, who for the next 15 days is a professor of political science at uh, Elmhurst College. And no, she's not leaving, but Elmhurst College, as we mentioned earlier, will become Elmhurst University on July 1st, correct? Correct. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Connie. We really enjoyed it. And hopefully we can have a follow-up in a few weeks, if you're willing. I'd love it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This is Aaron Jason, Business Development Coordinator for the City of Elmhurst. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 Census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Hi, this is Jack Island of the Silverado Grill. My definition of a great evening is yoga, Maryland crab cakes, and E-Town Lowdown with Robbie, Rick, and PK. Well, yoga and crab cakes. And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with Lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. Did you know that four different railroads once connected Elmhurst to Chicago and all points beyond? Well, one ponce of time, in fact, Elmhurst was a railroad town almost from the beginning. When the first settlers began taking side and growing crops in the 1830s and 40s, the only way to reach Chicago was along dirt roads that took hours to traverse. When it rained, wagons and stagecoaches faced axle-deep mud. During dry spells, bone-jarring ruts and clouds of dust made the 16-mile stretch between Chicago and our tiny settlement, then known as Cottage Hill, almost unbearable. All of that changed in the late 1840s, as the Galena and Chicago Union Railroad began laying track from Chicago west. By October of 1848, the first train west from the city chugged to the end of the line in Oak Park. The following year, on the 4th of July, the locomotive Pioneer reached our Cottage Hill. The sound of the train's whistle ushered in a new age and helped put our settlement on the map. <laughs> so let's dig a little deeper here. Um, it really is no exaggeration at all to say that the arrival of the, of the uh, railroad really helped to make our town and really set the stage for growth. Uh, Jerry Bates, who operated the Hill Cottage Tavern, which catered to a lot of the stagecoach traffic in those years, uh, saw the potential of the railroad, and he actually donated the right-of-way to the Glean and Chicago Union um, in exchange for a rather lucrative uh, little swap, which is that he got a freight and passenger depot across from his store. Now, this would give him very easy access to ship and receive freight. And then, as an added bonus, when the Pioneer, uh, which you just described, came into town on July 4th of 1849, it brought with it a very elegant $2,000 passenger coach. And so residents were able to take the train into Chicago at the dizzying speed of 25 miles an hour, reaching the Windy City in less than an hour, instead of that agonizing trek you just described a little earlier. And by the 60s and 70s, we're already seeing a kind of a nascent commuter culture beginning to take root 
in the community. Uh, and this line is incredibly important. The Chicago and Northwestern uh, Railway is going to get a hold of this in 1865 and transform that into one of the busiest stretches of track you're going to find in the United States. Union Pacific gets a hold of it in uh, 1995. And these tracks, uh, which still divide North and South Elmhurst, are really some of the busiest train tracks you're going to find here in the United States. A lot of the container ships that unload on the East and West Coast are sending freight right along that line. And of course, we use that uh, for Metro today. So we are still very much linked to the city. Now, a second train line, two of those four you were describing, is the Chicago Great Western Railway, which arrives in 1887 and gives us additional freight service and a very limited passenger service, again, from its depot uh, near South York Road. That uh, railway was also nicknamed the Corn Belt Route, and that saw service until about 1968. Uh, Park District gets a hold of it in 1971, and they renovate it for our bicentennial, and of course, it's still um, a really nice uh, Park District property today. And there's a 12-mile stretch of that right-of-way which still survives uh, linking uh, parts of Villa Park to West Chicago on the Great Western Trail. So we see bicycles and pedestrians where trains once were. Uh, now, the Illinois Central adds a return line through DuPage County in 1888, and so that return line cuts right through part of Elmhurst again, um, just south of Villette. And Canadian National acquired that in 1998, and you'll still see trains going back and forth on that stretch as well. And then we get a fourth and I think really important uh, light rail line that comes uh, shortly after the turn of the century. And this is the Chicago, Aurora, and Elgin Railway, which is founded in 1902 and links Elmhurst and a lot of other suburban communities in the West uh, to the Chicago Loop and has a passenger and light freight uh, service as well with several depots, uh, including along Spring Road and uh, near York and Villette. By the 20s, uh, this is becoming very lucrative and attractive, and developers are actually offering free rides on the CA&E, as we call it, to potential homeowners looking to build near the line. And the Spring Road and York and Villette business districts and a lot of new neighborhoods grow up all around the Chicago Roar and Elgin stops. And as the highway construction picks up in the 50s, this is kind of the death knell of the CA&E. Uh, uh, ridership drops off. They face a, lot of, uh, face a lot of steep competition from buses and automobiles. And train service abrupts very uh, ends very abruptly, July 3rd of 1957, stranding thousands of people. They actually pull the cars home at noon, rather an inconvenient time. Uh, and uh, uh, folks will still remember when they were uh, stranded downtown. But the Prairie Path follows that right-of-way today. And uh, if you want to learn a little more, come visit us at the Elmer's History Museum. We've got a terrific exhibit called On the Right Track by Rail to Chicago and Beyond, running through March 29th. That sounds like a great idea. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.